you're uh, going to need to get ready to party. Because not only has your suffering not gone unnoticed, but God himself has actually taken it personal. Which is why the gospel is beautiful. Which is why we live like life is beautiful. Which means that we live different than everybody else because of Jesus, the one who welcomes strangers. Let me show you what I mean out of Isaiah 52. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord, hear this, will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So, hear this, shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand." Isaiah 52 draws us into Isaiah 53, which we'll get to work with next week. I cannot wait to come to church next week to work through Isaiah 53. This is beautiful, beautiful, life-changing stuff. You need to get ready to party. Of course, you should be asking why. You look at the world around you, and it does not often seem like it is giving you cause to party. Right? I thought this even this morning as I was driving up to church, driving through the city, thinking about all the many people in our city who are living their lives as best they can without any real hope at the bedrock of their personality. Just recall that to mind this week when you're dealing with somebody who's perhaps a little more aggressive than you'd like, who's perhaps a little meaner than you feel comfortable with, and know that they are probably doing the best they can, and they have no hope at the bedrock of their soul. If you were to say to most of your friends, your coworkers, your colleagues, hey, you need to get ready to party, they'd be like, why? Why should we be ready to party? Well, from our perspective this morning, working with Isaiah 52, we should be ready to party because we get to wake up from our nightmare. Look at verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. 
the holy city. I almost wore my suit today. Those of you who know me and have been coming to Grace for a while know that I dress up once a year. I wear my suit on Easter Sunday, and it's a beautiful day. But I almost wore my suit today to illustrate this point. It is time for you to get dressed up, right? You go to a party, what do you do? You dress up. It happens all the time. Nikki looks like a million bucks, and I'm kicking and screaming. In fact, I'm so brutal that I have my, my dressy black hoodie. You'll have seen it. I have, I have a dressy black hoodie, and that's what I wear when we're going out to dinner. You're like, oh, your poor wife. I know. It's been 21 years of me not liking dressing up. But I am rebuked this morning because God is saying to me, your nightmare is over. It's time to dress up and look pretty. Okay, he's prophesying Isaiah, of course, to the Babylonian captives. And he's saying to that audience, Jews who'd been exiled from the city of Jerusalem when it was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 567 B.C. He's saying to those who've been living in captivity for years, People who are future from him. People who, some of them haven't even been born yet. They are children born in captivity in Babylon. He's saying, this long nightmare of your exile is coming to an end, so it is time for you to bust out your suit and get ready to party. You've been captive. You've been weak, but your nightmare is over. A Savior is coming. And, of course, we've talked throughout this series how Isaiah's prophecy of a coming Savior resonates for us as Christians so deeply as we see them fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus did, you can say like those captives would have said, Hooray! Hooray! Our nightmare is coming to an end. Salvation, from their perspective, is coming. Salvation, from our perspective, in Jesus, has come. Let's get dressed up and get ready to party. Question for you is, are you living like that freedom that was bought for you at such cost by Christ upon the cross? Are you living like that freedom is real? Isaiah is saying here to his audience, look, you're in for a good time, so you might as well get ready to look like it. So even if you don't put your suit on this week, at least put your smile on this week. First time something bad happens to you that threatens to steal your joy this week, remember Isaiah's words to God's people. Remember that he's saying your salvation is coming so you can get dressed up. To you as Christians, your salvation has come in Jesus so you can dress up your face with a smile. In light of what Jesus has done for us, surely we could smile. Verse 1, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Why? For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised or the unclean. Now, I know that here Isaiah is prophesying for you. Because if he was only prophesying for his original audience, he would be a false prophet. He's saying to them, there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Of course, he's referring here to foreign soldiers who would come in and sack Jerusalem. Of course, we know the history that Isaiah would not have known, that in AD 70, in fact, the uncircumcised and the unclean showed up again in Jerusalem in the form of the Roman armies. And once again, they laid waste to Jerusalem and once again destroyed her temple and once again exiled her people into an exile then that would not end until the Jews began returning from diaspora in the late 1800s through the 1900s, culminating, of course, in the formation of the Jewish state in 1948. A very, very long exile was coming, so surely Isaiah was not prophesying about that city of Jerusalem. I am actually quite sure he was prophesying about this city of Jerusalem. 
Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the twelve, and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I said this in first service. It's worth saying again. I kind of wish that Jesus would have said to his disciples when he called them originally in Galilee, your names are going to end up inscribed on the foundations of the new Jerusalem. Would have helped them a lot. Right? Wouldn't that help you a lot knowing that that's your destiny? But Jesus is weird sometimes. He doesn't tell them that that's their destiny. But here we see that one day their names. Imagine you're them for a second. You show up in glory. You go to the city of Jerusalem for the first time and you see your name inscribed on one of the 12 foundations. That's heavy duty. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. So I just want to say, the city of Jerusalem, cubically, is 2,221 kilometers cubed. That's how big, okay, the city of the New Jerusalem is being described here. 2,221 kilometers cubed. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. I just need to pause here. So this is a cubit from your elbow to the top of your highest finger. And he's saying here that a human cubit matches an angelic cubit. So as much as I've always imagined angels as 12 feet tall, they're probably the same size as us because their cubit is the same as our cubit. And the wall of the New Jerusalem is 144 of these. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. So we're going to have lots of Windex in the New Jerusalem. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made with a single pearl, and the city of the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing, here's the link to Isaiah, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is the Jerusalem that you have been promised. That is your eternal home. So in light of the fact that that magnificent, awesome, incredible place that is more than 2,000 cubic kilometers in size, that has streets that are so pure that they shine like glass even though they're made of gold, in light of the fact that that is your home, shake the dust off. Literally, that's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying your Jerusalem is so magnificent that you need to shake the death out of your life. We've talked about this all through Isaiah, haven't we? That dust is ofer, Okay, and it's symbolic of death. So in light of the Jerusalem that is your heavenly home, shake the death off of your life, loose the bonds off of your neck, and live like your freedom is free. 
Live that way this week. Like your freedom is really free. Because, here's point number two, not only has your suffering not gone unnoticed, God actually takes it personal. Look at verses 4 through 6. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. What Isaiah is saying here to his original audience is God has not forgotten you in Babylon. Have you ever felt like God has forgotten you? Right? I had one person bravely raise their hand with me in first service. You don't need to do it here. You know what I'm talking about? That season in life that's so dark that you feel like God has abandoned you. He's forgotten you. Where are you, Lord? Right? The psalmists knew this. Why hast thou forsaken me, O Lord? Jesus felt this as the Father turned his back on him on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why hast thou forsaken me? I feel like God has forgotten you. Isaiah is saying to his audience, God has not forgotten you. He remembers you. Not only does he remember you in Babylon, but he even remembers Egypt. Okay, this is the seminal story in Jewish identity. Okay, their slavery in Egypt and the fact that God took them out from slavery in Egypt with a mighty arm and a strong hand and led them through the wilderness to the promised land. Okay, so that Egypt story is absolutely bedrock to what it means to be Jewish. So he's saying to his original Jewish hearers here through the prophet Isaiah, I haven't forgotten you in Babylon. I even remember Egypt. And oh yeah, remember Sennacherib, that guy from Assyria? I remember him too. These are two of the major kind of national disasters that would have echoed in the Jewish mind from the times of Isaiah through forward into the time of Babylonian captivity. All those Jews would have remembered Egypt. They would have remembered Assyria. You may remember the story of the Assyrian king Sennacherib who laid waste to all the cities of Israel and Judah, working his way south. He got to Jerusalem, but he did not conquer Jerusalem. Why? Remember the story of King Hezekiah? praying to God for mercy. He's like, Lord, deliver us. What happens? The king wakes up the next morning, goes out, and the Assyrian army is gone. Why? Because plague broke out in the camp the night before. Okay, so the Assyrians, although they conquered all of Israel on their way south, they did not conquer Jerusalem, but God remembers. He remembers Egypt. He remembers Assyria. He remembers them in Babylon. If it was true for God's people then, it is true for God's people now. God has not forgotten you. So the next time you feel bereft and alone, remember Babylon, and remember that God does not forget. In fact, he says this, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. He says that in Romans 12, 19. You know what I like most about the image of God as the avenger? That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm the avenger. I'm the great avenger. Vengeance is mine. He says, I own it. I own vengeance. I will repay. You know what I like most about that image? God as the avenger means I don't have to be. Let that relief wash over you just for a second. Oh, you who have been fixated on making things right, on wreaking vengeance on those who have wronged you. Have you carried that burden around for years, maybe? Maybe the wrong that somebody committed against you was very real and very dark. And maybe your desire for vengeance is even just. Okay? I'm not looking at you to try and get you to change how you feel. I'm trying to help you change how you feel by showing you that God knows what happened to you and God is the one who will one day make all things right, including taking vengeance where it's needed. So if God is the avenger, and you don't have to be, instead of living all bound up with a desire to make things right, you can just live in peace. You can live in peace. 
You can take a deep breath because you don't have to get even anymore. So my question to you is this. What could you let go of this week? Knowing now that God is the avenger and you don't have to be, what could you let go of this week that you've been carrying around with you? You can let go of it because ultimately this is not about you. Ultimately this is about God. Consider verses 5 through 6. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. So here's what God is saying. He sees the misery of his people in captivity. He says, what have we here? My people are being taken lightly. He's saying in modern day vernacular, their enemies are annoying. My name is despised continually. I think it's time I speak up. So I thought about the fact that God noticed that his name was despised in the day of Babylon. Made me think about our culture. I experience this all the time. I'm a football coach at Centennial. We just lost the D10 championship two weekends ago. It's nice to get to the championship. It's terrible to lose. Football is wonderful because it teaches you humility because you always lose more than you win. But that team, I love those kids. I love coaching them. But they are a bunch of profane animals, let me tell you. Every practice, they take the Lord's name in vain like 16 times, and they know that Coach Todd is Pastor Todd. And so sometimes if they do it, and I'm in earshot, and I kind of twitch a little bit, they go, sorry, Coach. (laughs) Sorry, Coach. I don't worry about foul language, but if they take the name of the Lord in vain, uh, it gets a little bit of a reaction. And I thought, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. It's so casual. It doesn't even mean anything to them. They're not trying to offend anybody, let alone the Lord. They don't even believe he exists. His name is despised. It is profaned all the time. This is so true in our day and age, is it not? And if we're honest, it's true in our hearts also. Like, I'm not divorcing myself from our crooked culture. I'm part of it. Okay, I'm part of it. So God says, I think it's time I speak up. So there's a wonderful instance recorded in the scripture where the Lord God speaks up. Do you want it in Hebrew first, then the English, or English first, then the Hebrew? Hebrew first. You're just like first service. Okay. See if you can spot it in the Hebrew. You'll know it as soon as I do it in the English, but you might even know it as you get it in the Hebrew. I'll try and pantomime what some of the words mean. Hine mishkan Elohim imanashim, v'shachan betucham v'hem yihiyu lo le'am, v'hu haya lahem la'elohim. Who knows what it is? Who knows what it is? Y'all know what it is. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne, Behold, I make all things new. Somebody shout in your heart for Revelation 21, 3 to 5. Behold, I make all things new. Hear this. Your beautiful Savior takes your suffering so personally that he's going to get up off his throne, step back into space-time history to make all things new. Hallelujah. Which leads us to point number three. This is why the gospel is so beautiful. Is the gospel not beautiful? 
It's beautiful. The gospel tells us that God exists, that he made everything that is, including you, to be his friend forever. Did you know that's why you exist? To be God's friend forever. The gospel tells us that God made all things good, and then all those good things fell when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, disobeying his one clear instruction to them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of course they did. Of course they would, because we're like them. And when they did that, death and sin entered into the human story. And because God is holy and cannot tolerate sin in any form, he banished them from his presence and also from the garden. Cursed now to live in an ongoing cycle as birth gave way to death, and then birth gave way to death, and then birth gave way to death on throughout the sad generations of humanity. You had this race built by God to be like God in his image and likeness, to be his friends forever, now cursed to wander, lost and abandoned, bereft and without hope. What a shame. What a loss. What a tragedy. But God in his mercy did not leave us alone. In the fullness of time he did what? He sent his one and only begotten son that what? Whomsoever believeth on him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Why? Because that son, Jesus Christ, God the son made flesh, went to a cross and he hung there And as he hung there, God the Father placed on him the iniquities of us all. God the Father punished God the Son in your place for your sin. And the chastisement for our peace, as we will read next week, was upon him. And by his stripes, we were healed. And this good Jesus died, but he did not stay dead. The third day, he rose again victorious, triumphing in his body over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. And he appeared to his friends. He hung out with them. They'd be hanging out, eating. He'd just appear in the room, ask for some food, spend some time with them, and then he'd be gone. He does this over and over again until eventually, right in front of their eyes, he ascends to the Father's right hand and he sits down on his chair in glory and victory. And what does he begin doing? He begins interceding for you. And it's from that chair that he will get up one day and come again in glory to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place. That is the gospel. You belong to God. You have always belonged to God. You have become a rebel against God because of your sin, but God himself has made that right in offering up God the Son on the cross to suffer and die in your place for your sin so that the power of sin, Satan, death, and hell should not rule any longer in your life, but so that you might be free. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is beautiful, which is why we live like life is beautiful. Can I just say that life is not beautiful by itself? Do you agree with me? It's not. If an alien showed up tomorrow, said, so what's it like being human? I'd say, it mostly sucks with moments of goodness in between. Like I did have a nice bowl of oatmeal on Tuesday, to God be the glory. That was all right. But the rest of the week was kind of crappy. Is that not the human experience? Like Handel's Messiah is kind of beautiful, but Lil Wayne sucks most of the time. You know what I'm saying? Right? Like Hondas are nice to drive, but Hyundai's not so much, right? Like life is okay, but it's not great. You know, like we have a snow plowing contract, but they didn't clear the snow. So it's like our parking lot is kind of a picture of hell, right? That's life. Life is not beautiful in and of itself, right? But the gospel is beautiful. And because the gospel is beautiful, you can look at your crappy life and really find the beautiful moments in it. And you can look at all the non-beautiful people around you and you can know that they are those for whom Christ died. And so you can look upon them through eyes that are filled with the power of redemption. And so even though life is not beautiful, you can see it that way because the gospel is beautiful. So what does a beautiful life look like? Look at verse 8. 
Here's a picture of the beautiful life. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. A beautiful life looks like a bunch of people keeping watch together. So the question for you is this. Are you living a life of watchful togetherness with other crazy Jesus people, or are you trying to do it alone? Okay, you know how Christians can be annoying? Sometimes we're annoying because we're sanctimonious and legalistic. Don't be that kind of annoying Christian. But Christians are also annoying because they're always on edge. Have you noticed? They're always like, when's Jesus coming? Maybe he's coming tomorrow. If not tomorrow, maybe he's coming Wednesday. Are are, are Christians not like this? We're kind of annoying, right? Because we're like, well, if he doesn't come today, maybe he's going to come tomorrow. And I better watch that I do not fall into temptation because when he shows up, I want to be able to say, yeah, Jesus, yeah, look, yes, Lord, look at all this stuff that you gave me. Here, take it back. There's a few talents. Take it back, Lord. And so they're annoying because they're always watching for Jesus and thinking about Jesus and meditating upon Jesus. You can be that kind of annoying. That's all right. Do it together with a bunch of other kind of annoying people, Right? whose eyes are fixed on the new Jerusalem and who live like the gospel is beautiful and that beauty is making their life beautiful. Look at your social calendar. Are you going it alone or are you doing it together? You should be doing it together more than you be doing it alone. And I say this as an introvert who struggles with togetherness, so my wife helps me find somebody who can help you. Say, I'm kind of shy. Can I hang out with you? Because I notice that you know everybody, so maybe you can help me do life together, okay? Beautiful life looks like a life done together watchfully. Continue in verse 8, a beautiful life looks like a bunch of people who are living life watchfully together and who sing for joy. I love this part. They sing for joy. So how do you live a beautiful life? You put a smile on your face and you get used to singing. My gosh, I'm already out of time. I can't believe it. Put a smile on your face and get used to singing. Why? For eye to eye, they will see the return of the Lord to Zion. Friends, you will see the return of the King. So, verse 9, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And just in case you're wondering here, break forth into joy. Break forth into singing literally means explode into joy together. Explode. And yes, I have a bias in this area. And yes, I am often criticized because of my bias in this area. But I will not repent of my bias in this area because my bias is correct and it is also biblical. It says here to explode into joy. You waste places of Jerusalem. So what's happening here is that these wasted, these barren places of Jerusalem, and I've been there. I have picked up arrowheads from the Babylonian conquest of the city of Jerusalem, and you can still see the ash from the burning of that city at that time. I have been to those waste places, and I have had waste places in my life, and so have you, friend. And the picture here is of that waste place bursting forth into life. And if you can stand in a desert and see it in a moment turned into the garden of the Lord... And not break forth into singing this. Something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with you. And that's the word of the Lord. Break forth into singing. Why? Because God, I just popped my eardrum. Because God has comforted all of your waste places. And because he is flexing his arms in front of everyone, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans 14, 11, which means in light of all this glorious truth, point number five, that we live different. 
Okay, I told you what it looks like to live a beautiful life. Here's what it looks like to live different. Verses 11 through 12. Depart. Depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord, woo, receive it. For the Lord will go before you, and the Lord God of Israel will be your rear guard. Here comes the most important point of this whole darn sermon. This is what it looks like to live different. Verse 11. We depart from captivity. Depart. Depart. Go out from here. Let me ask you this question. Are you still living like you're in bondage? Do you still insist on living in bondage even though Jesus Christ came to make you free? Remember the story of Lazarus? Jesus' friend who died. Jesus was late to the party. Wasn't there to save him. He shows up. Lazarus is dead. Everyone's mourning. Jesus is like, don't worry about it. Let's go see him. They're like, but Lord, he stinketh. I love that in the the King James. Lord, he stinketh. Jesus is like, don't worry, don't worry. Let's go see him. Roll back the stone. Say, roll back the stone. What does Jesus do? Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> I love it. I lo- Lazarus, wake up. <clears throat> and what happens? His friend Lazarus wakes up and he comes up out of the grave. But he's still in his grave clothes, still wrapped up in Jewish grave clothes. And what does Jesus say? This is very important. My friend Gord Marriage preached it for the first time 25 years ago. So you give credit where credit is due. He says to the friends of Lazarus, loose him and let him go. Friend, you may have been raised from the dead, but you're still wearing your pajamas. Time to take the grave clothes off. Loose him and let him go. Okay? Get raised. Get loose. Get going. Right? Go for a walk, man. Go for a walk, woman. Get out into this new life that Jesus has given you and walk it out. I was thinking that hip-hop song, walk it out. Walk it out. Anyway, maybe that's before your time. Depart from captivity. Touch no unclean thing, verse 11. Walk with Jesus in the holiness of Jesus by the Spirit of God as day by day He transforms us by the renewing of our mind. Of course, that's Romans 12, 12. Into the people of God. And what are the people of God like? I'll tell you what the people of God are like, and I stole this from 1 Peter 2. The people of God are chosen. They're royal. They're priestly. They're holy. The people of God are the possession of the Lord. They are the proclaimers of the excellencies of Christ who has shown us mercy, made us strangers and sojourners who don't really fit in anymore, but who go out from the midst of her. Do you feel that way? You don't really fit in anymore? I want to be careful, right? I want us to be culturally sensitive and aware. I want us to be kind to everybody and show mercy. But I do not want us to become blended in because the people of God should always be ill at ease until they awake one day in the presence of God. And then you should feel at home. Until then, you should always feel slightly uncomfortable. Like, I don't belong here. This world is messed up. Nothing is right. Okay, you're a stranger and sojourner. That's how it's meant to be. And you are called here through the prophet Isaiah to God's people in Babylon through Jesus to you, God's people, to come out of the midst of Babylon pure and carrying not the vessels of the Lord as they would have eventually carried the vessels of the Lord back to restore temple worship in Jerusalem. But what are the vessels of the Lord symbolic of? They are symbolic of the presence of the Lord. And you are full of the presence of the Lord because of the Holy Spirit of God. So you are to come out from Babylon and to go home which in our case is to the future Jerusalem, full of the presence of the Lord, which should make you kind of weird. Or should be like, there's, there's something about that person. Y'all feel me? Okay, you should not fit in. You should look different. You should be a little weird. Okay, it's as you do this that you can live a life without any rush or any worry. He says that to his original audience. You don't have to hurry out. You don't have to rush on your way out. Why? Because like Israel of old, hear this. This is the most important part. With the cloud... Okay, and the pillar of fire encamped round 
about them, verse 12, the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And worship team, I'm done. You already heard this most important point, so you won't miss it as you walk. Okay? Here's the most important point. The Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And what rear guard actually means here in the Hebrew is masfechem. And masfechem comes from the root la'asof. And the root la'asof means to collect or to pick up. So what this really means is that the Lord God goes before you and the Lord God goes behind you to pick up stragglers. You ever felt like you're the straggler? Like every time I go running with Nikki, I feel like I'm the straggler. I'm the helmet Jesus. I'm coming to see you. (gasps) I don't run with her anymore because she makes me so depressed, right? You ever felt like spiritually you're the straggler? Like you're the run to the litter? Hey, guess what? Run to the litter. Look behind you. You know who's behind you? Run to the litter. (laughs) Jesus is behind you. Bringing up the rear. Collecting all the stragglers. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. All this is true because of Jesus. All this is good because of Jesus. Jesus, who is described as the suffering servant, he's kind of introduced that way in the tail end here of of chapter 52, verses 13 through 14. And of course, he's illustrated that way magnificently in next week's Isaiah 53. But our Jesus is just that good. He's just that good. Let me finish with verse 15. All of it. Hear it. Receive hope. So shall he, the great Savior, sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And this one verse made my whole week and gave me a sermon to preach. So shall he sprinkle not just his people, but many Nations. So shall he sprinkle many nations, and some who never heard of him, and some who never saw him, will get invited to the party. Because not only has their suffering not gone unnoticed, God himself is taking it personal, which is why the gospel is beautiful, which is why we live like life is beautiful, which means we live different from everybody else because of Jesus, the one who welcomes strangers. And, and that's the best thing I heard all week.